Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. All right, so as Daniel said, my name is AJ Exner. I'm one of your elders here at Hill City Church, and I hope everybody's had a good morning so far. I hope, and I only assume, that everything went smoothly this morning as you got ready to come here, that everything went perfect, that there were certainly no conflicts between spouses or trying to wrangle a bunch of rowdy kids together to get here. Um, But if we had to be honest, that's 100% not the case. And there's always something going on that's trying to take our attention away. There are family burdens. There are kids screaming and squirming. There are hair that didn't cooperate. There are outfits that didn't quite come together the way that you thought that they would. There are vacations to plan and family burdens to try and get around. And so with that weight, we come here today. We are together as a corporate body at Hill City Church. And it is very, very easy to be distracted. With all the things that are crying out for our attention of our ears, our hearts, and our minds, I want us to come together today and really try to hone in on what's being said. Because if you remember from what Brad said last week, what we know and what we think about God is going to be the most important thing that we can know. And it will shape everything. It will shape how we respond to everything in our lives. And so today, as Daniel kind of mentioned, the attribute we're going to be talking about, I would argue, is at the top of the list of attributes to know and to understand about God. It's something that our understanding of shapes our view of everything, and that attribute is the very holiness of God. Now, a couple of caveats for you guys going into this morning. For one, when Brad kind of laid it out there to the people who were teaching in July and talked about an attribute... To, to mention, it kind of left it open. This was the first one that came to mind for me. But with that, I have a lot of hesitancies. I have a lot of, of, of angst as I try to think about it because basically anything I read from any preacher that writes about or talks about the actual preaching of holiness and trying to understand the holiness of God usually goes something along the lines of good luck or sorry for the guy who has to try and do this. But with that, I 100% see why. I I completely, as I was reading and studying over and over again in these past few weeks, I have felt the weight of this. I have felt the weight of what holiness means. And I think if to any of you who have ever truly meditated on or prayed about or have even thought about what what holiness really means, I think you you get the weight of that a little bit too. And my worry is that this morning, if, if I do fail to effectively communicate what it is and what it means, that the best case scenario is I might just confuse you a little bit, and you might walk out of here scratching your head wondering what, what in the world this guy was talking about. But the worst case scenario is that I break the third commandment and I use God's name in vain. So, you know, we've got a good, good spectrum that I can really work with this morning. But with that, our growth and our understanding of God's holiness completely shapes not just how we respond, but also our understanding of God, our understanding of the gospel, and it completely shapes our understanding of what happens on the cross. And it hinges on this idea of holiness. What do we think about holiness and what this word means? And so I'm going to do my best to try and help you out this morning, and I hope and I only assume that you will probably feel 
a lot of what I felt these past couple of weeks and trying to understand it myself. So it all, it all just kind of goes around this one question. What is holiness? Now, going into this, I kind of had some preconceived notions. I had, you know, I had heard other sermons. I had heard other pastors kind of talk about it. And it all kind of revolves around uh, this idea of being set apart. It's probably something that when I first mentioned it, it was, came to a lot of your minds too. That to be holy means to be pure. It means to be without fault. Many early texts, including those found in the Bible, even talk about holiness being the key aspect to God's power. So kind of combining all these things, you get all of this, plus a lot of people associate it even with his creative nature and how he created everything. So if there were kind of three ideas that I kind of focused around, because like a good Baptist, you have three things. They don't all start with the same letter, I'm sorry. But it's, it's this idea of majestic, pure, and perfect. And it's here that when, we, when it comes to holiness, to define holiness, that's where it gets a little tricky. I can try to whittle it down to a nice quip or something to kind of help you try to remember, but it's going to be impossible to truly and comprehensively pin down what this word means. But we have to try. We have to try to come to an understanding of what holiness is because it is absolutely essential to understand the implications of how we are to respond to the truth, the truth that he is majestic, that he is pure, and that he is set apart, that he is set apart from all creation as the creator. He is pure and that he cannot be found around any kind of imperfection of any kind, and that he is majestic, so majestic that he imposes a sense of beauty and grandness that manages to create both a sense of fear and an awe throughout all of creation. So holiness, being the essential trait of God, encapsulates all of these things, that he is set apart, majestic, that he is pure, that he is powerful, and through that, he creates, and it is because of it, creation worships him. So there's a lot of churchy words being thrown out there, and I know it's going to be really tough to to try and start putting other churchy words to associate with it. And it's going to be tough because as you think about it, there's going to be words like love and mercy and justice, and you're going to want to try and tie those in all together with this idea of holiness. But let's really try to come to a clearer understanding of what holiness in and of itself truly means. Because when when we look at the Bible and we understand what it talks about when it says holiness, You know, oftentimes when something's said in the Bible once, it's pretty important because it's in the Bible. When something is said twice, it is meant to be emphasized. So a lot of times when you hear the stories of Jesus when he's in conversation with people, oftentimes he would say, truly, truly, I say to you. That means that what he's saying is meant to be emphasized and it's meant to really try to pique your interest. But the only time in the Bible that a word is used three times to describe an attribute of God or to describe God at all It is this word, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. He never uses the word love, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It is the word holy alone that is meant to use, that is used to praise and to lift the name of God. So that there's something to it that I hope we can come to an understanding of, and I hope that after our time together this morning, we can come to a a clearer picture of what this word really means. But there are going to be a couple times where I'm going to pray this morning because this is a weighty subject. So let's pray one more time. Father, God, this, is, this is a tough, tough subject. But God, 
pray that this, this imperfect vessel can communicate this truth today, that our hearts are willing, that they are open, and that, God, that your Holy Spirit can come down and help us in understanding this weighty idea of holiness. So, God, we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So a great tool of Bible study, whenever you're trying to understand a concept or a word, is to look at oftentimes the early, the early times that it's mentioned in the Bible to kind of get an idea of context and really to try and understand what's being done. So the first time that the word holy is used is actually in reference to the holy covenant during the early stages of creation. Uh, it doesn't give a lot of context, but it really, it really starts to kind of paint a picture when we look at the next instance. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. And so in Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, we, start to see, we see this word holy really being used in a way that I think is, is applicable uh, for our understanding of it. And I think we can really start to, again, get a better understanding of what's going on. So Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not being burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God, called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He tells Moses to take off his shoes because the ground, the very ground that he is on, is holy. This patch of earth around this miraculous bush that somehow is not being consumed by this giant fire is not like any ground you have ever stepped on before. It's because this word holy, it's being used as an adjective to describe this patch of earth, meaning that this particular ground is majestic, it is set apart, and it should be treated with respect and honor, because being holy tells us that its very nature does not allow for unpure or dirty things to come in its presence. This is being done to protect Moses, because if he does step foot on this, then best case scenario, God leaves that place to protect Moses and probably comes back a little bit later. But worst case scenario is Moses dies on the spot because of the very power of God's holiness in that place. You see, it's because holy things and sin, they cannot exist together. To be holy means that sin must be completely obsolete, and that anything unclean will never be allowed to be around it. So by obeying the command of God, by taking off his sandals, Moses acknowledges his uncleanliness before God and proceeds to him with an open and willing heart. And so if you fast forward a little bit, after escaping Egypt, really just because of the power of God in that moment, we see another instance of holiness in Exodus chapter 22. You can turn there, you don't have to. But it's here where the Israelites are called to be his holy people. So what does that mean? It means that God has called the Israelites to be set apart that they are to be respected, and they are to be pure, and they themselves are to be majestic. Now, this brings another interesting aspect of holiness. Only holy things can make something else holy. Oftentimes, history is drenched with unholy things trying to make things holy. Oftentimes, we ourselves 
are guilty of it when we create pillars that create conflict and strife with friends and family. But it's in this moment that God has called the Israelites, that he, the standard of holiness, has called them to be greater than what they are. And it's in the following chapters of Exodus that God goes through all of the law and explains what it looks like to be holy, what it takes to be holy. And needless to say, the people are completely incapable of doing it. Because being innately sinful, being the seed of Adam, that in our very core, we are sinful. It means that we cannot be holy. We cannot act holy. We cannot be around holiness. Because as it was shown multiple times throughout the Old Testament, that we will perish. We will die in the very shadow of holiness. And it's not until Leviticus 19 after giving the many commands of what it looks like to be and to pursue holiness, does God explain the why? He says in Leviticus 19, be holy as I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Catch that? He says to you to be, to, to act, to pursue, to try with all of your strength to be holy as I, the Lord, your God, am holy. It's in his very nature, it's his very identity. He is in and of himself holy. He cannot help but be that. The world was created out of his majesty and power, and it is very creation that bows down to this attribute of God, and we are to try with all of our strength to be that way. Because you see, more than anything else, does God love? Yes, of course God loves. Does he have mercy? Yes, of course God has mercy. Does, does he bless people? Most definitely. But it is his holiness, his divine sovereignty that is to be worshipped over all because that is how he describes himself, to be holy as I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So, are you starting to feel the weight of it yet? It's the goal. It's daunting to try to understand it. But I promise, as, as scary as it seems, as daunting as it may appear, to devote yourself to understanding God's holiness, everything will start to fall into place. So like I said, because of God's holiness, he has the power to create. He has the power, the very power out of his holiness to speak things into existence. For example, have you ever realized that it's because of this trait alone that he could simply speak the universe into existence. That is because him being set apart and holy is set apart from the things that he creates. And if you have to understand that there's, I'm gonna have to apologize, I'm a bit of a science guy. So you have to understand the nuance, the, the little details that, that it's easy to just imagine him going poof and things happen, things appeared, and there's an element of that. But when you start to understand the nuance and the detail of creation, that was put into place. I want you to, just a couple of things to think about. Do you realize that Earth, had it not been put on around a 23 and a half degree tilt, and it's, Earth is not straight up and down, it's actually on a slight tilt, that if it was not on a tilt, it wouldn't allow for a lot of the plants that we know to exist. It wouldn't, we wouldn't have seasons, the tides would be off. There are a number of things that would, be, that would make life very, very difficult to exist. Or that if we were any further away from the sun than where we're at now, it would freeze and life wouldn't be able to exist, and vice versa if we were any closer to the sun. That the element carbon in and of itself is able to 
forms stable chains of itself that allows life, allows our bodies to hold together. And that even the molecule water is so unique that scientists are still looking for it all around the world, yet it has yet to be found. But because of it, we are able to live. So God, in his holy power, created all of this and much more out of nothing. Order out of disorder, merely by telling it to be. So God, in his holy power, creates all of this, and he, it's what a lot of theologians call the divine imperative, that because he told it to be, it was. So now I'm going to give you permission here for a sec. I want, I, at some point, you're going to have to open your eyes, but I want you to close your eyes for a sec. Don't fall asleep on me. I know it's a Sunday morning. hope you had your coffee. So just close your eyes for a second. I want us to think about what this looks like, the beauty that God was able to create by merely speaking it into existence. Imagine the most beautiful place you've ever been to, a mountain range, sitting on the beach overlooking the vastness of an ocean, in a plane looking at the tops of miles and miles of white fluffy clouds, or even just an Ozark's sunset. Fields of wildflowers, roaring rivers, cascading waterfalls, soaring mountain ranges, all because he told them to be. That is the holiness of God at work. Out of nothing comes something. Out of darkness comes light. From the void comes beauty. And even now, from death comes life. All right, open your eyes. Better open your eyes. Call you out from up here and see you. So how? It's because of his holiness alone, his divine nature that allows him to do so. It is the how and the why, the power of his being to call things into an existence. And it, that is worthy of worship and adoration. And it is that that Isaiah comes face to face with that I think, again, it's going to help us to try to understand what our response to this needs to be. And so we're going to spend a good chunk of time, so I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. And I think this story would give us an impressive display of what the holiness of God really means for us, but through the lens and through the eyes of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was also known as Isaiah ben Amaz. He was a major prophet in the Old Testament, and it was really during and after the reign of King Uzziah, who had reigned on the throne of Israel for over 50 years. Now, he was, King Uzziah was really beloved from, from the Israelites' perspective. They loved him. He reigned for a long, long time. And so really in this time, there's kind of a time of mourning. And so, so Isaiah really utilized this time to really speak into the Israelites and really try to encourage them and tell them more about God. Now, Isaiah was unique in the sense that when we hear stories of prophets, a lot of times I get in my mind what a prophet looked like. So I always think of John the Baptist, who there are stories of him wearing camel fur. Uh, he ate locusts and honey. Like this guy, I hate to say it, probably didn't have a lot of friends. He's probably a bit of a loner. Probably, I don't know how he was at, I don't know how he was like at parties, but I'm assuming the camel guy with locusts and honey probably wasn't a big hit. But Isaiah was not this way. He was not this person. He was a prophet of prophets. He was the king of kings. He rubbed elbows with all the royalty of the time. All the, the, the kings, the princes, he was at all the meals, all the functions. He was there. Yet God called him to the life of a prophet in the midst of his blessing. And the many things that this man prophesied 
they were unique prophecies, to say the least, very specific when it comes to the life of Christ. And it is because of this great man that we see all these things happen over time. So it's after this time of King Uzziah's passing that when we find not just a prophecy, but a great look into the majesty and the holiness of God. So we're just going to kind of read through this interaction. We'll kind of pick it apart as we go. But we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Now there's a lot to unpack with this, but let's start here. Do you notice in verse 1 and in verse 3 that the word Lord looks a little bit different? I'll let you look again real quick. So starting that initially in verse 1, and then the song of the seraphim in verse 3. It's because in Hebrew, specifically in the Old Testament, they had a lot of different names for God that really honed in on Uh, certain characteristics of him. And so the one that we're probably the most familiar with is Yahweh, which is often spelled without an A and an E. So it's Y-A-H-W-E-H. So a lot of times the vowels, the A and the E, are taken away as as it was being written. And this really, this, this name represents the holiness of God, that the Israelites during this time would even be hesitant to say Yahweh because of the power and the fear uh, that, that was to be taken seriously with not just who he was, but even just in his name. Which, of course, obviously begs the question, do we approach God with the same type of respect and fear? But, again, just something to kind of think about. So whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the term Yahweh that's being used there. But then you also see Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. So this is the English translation of the Hebrew word Adonai. It's another name for God that refers to him being sovereign, that he is essentially in in control of everything. So for context, you can hold your spot in Isaiah. I want you to flip real quick to Psalms chapter 8. Or you can just make a note of it in a journal somewhere and get back to it later. Psalm 8 verse 1, it says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I, took, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So you see that in verse 1. We see that verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord. But the spelling right there is what we see the difference in. So, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And understanding 
what the Hebrew was trying to communicate in this moment. We understand this to read, O Yahweh, our Adonai. Or even further, you can read, O God, our sovereign one. How majestic is your name in all the earth. So we see Isaiah in the very presence of God himself acknowledging these two important aspects of God's character, his, ho- his holiness and his sovereignty. So now I heard it put this way, and I think as we're trying to understand what Isaiah is trying to communicate, and I think as we're trying to understand Isaiah himself, uh, somebody had, uh, I had spent some time the last couple of weeks just talking to people and trying to say, hey, what, when you think of holiness, what, what comes to mind? And somebody heard it from a sermon that I think really kind of, it, it got me thinking a little bit, and I think it's something that would be in, intriguing to throw out to you guys today. He's, this, this pastor put it this way. He said that there's only one other place in the world that is more terrifying to imagine being in than hell, and that is standing before a holy God as a sinful man. Remember, God in his holiness cannot and will not be around sin. It is his very character that allows him to never be in the presence of it, which means that sinners standing before God, there's only one way that this is going to end. And Isaiah, being the man of God that he is, feels the weight of this moment. He looks around in in this temple and he sees seraphim, angelic beings that were created for one purpose, to worship God. And let's, let's just think about it for a second. Six wings, these things are huge, very terrifying. So he stands there in front of these giant angelic beings as they are covering their eyes and their feet to not stand or to see the holy presence of God. But here they are in this moment with Isaiah being a fleshy, imperfect, fearful man standing below these seraphim, being terrifying creatures in and of themselves that are crying out to the Holy One, yelling at the top of their lungs, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. These things are crying out, holy, holy, holy are you Yahweh. Your glory has permeated through all of your creation, and we are not worthy to gaze upon you. And even in their voice, these seraphim, these step below God himself, that even in their voice, they are rattling the foundations and the structures holding this temple up. This is a lot, a lot to take in. And rightfully so, Isaiah is scared. He's fearful. He is imperfect standing before a holy and righteous God. And it's easy because the word holy is so often placed in front of God's name and even placed so often in front of other words that sometimes we just, we have a hard time understanding what the word means. But I'm going to say something that's going to, it's going to be tough to wrestle with, but in order to understand what this word by itself means, it has to be said. That God does not have to love to be holy. Let me say that again. God, being holy, does not have to love. He does not have to have mercy in order to be holy. And I think Isaiah feels the weight of that in this moment, and as he should. You see in verse 5, his response, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, as a prophet, a good Hebrew would prophesy using certain words at the beginning of his phrase to communicate the fact that he was actually in the midst of a prophecy. 
And so one of the most common ways would be, especially just a single word that would be used to throw in at the beginning of it. We often see this with Christ. A lot of times when he would communicate, he would actually speak using prophetic language. And we know that because a lot of instances that we see recorded, he would start by saying things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and even blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This idea of, of, of speaking prophecy would be... Ter- the, the idea is being an oracle, that, that, that a, an oracle would be presented in front of the people that would either condone uh, or essentially condemn the people that they were speaking to. So Jesus would often use this type of language as the great prophet in order to speak to the masses that he was speaking to. So you see this idea of blessed at the beginning of the phrase, but he'd often use another one that, that wasn't nearly as happy sounding. A lot of times he would start off with woe, W-O-E. Woe. Obviously not a word that we're using a lot nowadays. But oftentimes this was done as a prophet by mean to, stop, to get you to stop doing something. Like you are doing this thing, woe to you if you continue to do this. So it was used to communicate the seriousness of an issue. And oftentimes Jesus would speak specifically to the Pharisees whenever he would use this particular word. He would say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and then would go on to either tell them that they were whitewashed tombs or a brood of vipers, those types of things. So this was oracle language that was being used by prophets really as an announcement of doom. But it was used exclusively when speaking about someone else or something else. And so what we see by Isaiah is something completely different. We see something completely unique in how he does it. And it's the subject of his oracle. Woe to who? Me. He says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me. He has put this announcement of impending doom upon himself, because after looking upon God, he has found himself in the most terrifying place to be, and that is in the presence of a holy and mighty God as an unclean man. I am ruined. Now, many older translations, the word ruined isn't necessarily used. It's actually this term, undone. So saying I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, it kind of communicates, I think, something a little bit differently. So this phrase of being undone, it's it's something that, again, I kind of took some time to think about. And there was a moment in my life where it was actually my sophomore year in high school. I had just I was trying to think ahead, trying to think about college, and so I was trying to sign up for, you know, different clubs, different academic things. And so I joined this thing called the National Honor Society. I knew it would look good on a resume. Really, my biggest weakness as a student was I was kind of lazy. And so this is one of those where I did it, did all the things. I had a lot of rules and regulations. You had to maintain certain GPA and all these different things. So I was like, okay, I got that taken care of. I went into my sophomore year ready to go. Now, I'm in a biology class and we're getting ready to take this test. And it was a test that I knew I hadn't studied for. It was one that, I, you know, confession, I just I, the laziness was coming out in me. And so instead of just taking it and saying, I'm probably not going to get a grade in it, I thought, eh, I'll just try to be sneaky here. And I tried to, and I know there's so many more creative ways to cheat. Sorry. I just put a piece of paper with most of the answers, and I just stuck it really kind of under the desk, under my backpack, to where I could kind of see it and hope that I can get away with it. Well... It was about a 40, 50 question test. I'm about 10 questions in, and the teacher catches me. Pult walks up, hand on shoulder, 
takes the test, gives me that, that look. You know, the teachers in the room, you know the look. The look shakes their head and walks off. In that moment, I was caught. And so that was kind of where I thought about when I thought of this idea of undone. In the sense that I was caught. There was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. I couldn't reason myself out of it at that point. It was obvious what I was doing. But that's kind of the idea that I thought about. It's this idea of you're unraveled. You are coming apart at the seams. In that moment, I, was, I thought, this is, I mean, I, I'm in tons of clubs and different things that literally in the rules, like near the top, it's no cheating. And so in that moment, I'm thinking, I'm probably out of this. That's probably going to hurt my scholarship opportunities. There's all these things that in that moment, because of a stupid decision, undone. I think that's where Isaiah is in this moment, that he is caught red-handed. God knows everything. He is exposed and he is naked before the God of the universe. There's no hiding and there's nowhere to run. No deeds or actions or service or good things that you've done can stand up before Yahweh. On earth, you might try to compare yourself to other people and say, hey, at least I'm not as bad as this person. But when you're standing in front of the absolute standard of holiness, pure and unrivaled before Yahweh himself, there's nothing you can do and you will feel undone. Now, I know a lot of you guys might already be feeling this way in different aspects of life. But two things if you're feeling this, this guilt and shame. I think it's in the words of this holy God who says in Luke, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. It is the oracle from the great prophet of Christ who said both in word and in deed that you who are guilt-ridden and insecure will be comforted. Let's continue on in Isaiah. What was Isaiah's response? He says, woe to me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah probably more now than he ever has has recognized and identified his sin and acknowledges that before God. If I can just take a second, even just to pick the one that he chooses, can we admit that there, there are very few things in this world can do as much damage in as quick amount of time as the tongue? There are few things that with a single cut, with a single sentence, can ruin friendships, can break down families, that can strain relationships, that can start wars, and that can sabotage lives. Isaiah knows this and has probably been guilty of it in and of himself. So what does he do? He repents. Because in the midst of Isaiah's understanding of what his place is in the cosmic order, he knows the depth of his sin in front of this holy God, and he is trying to reconcile two major attributes of God in this moment, God's holiness and God's love. Like I said, we have to try and parse out holiness, but at some point when it comes to God, it all comes back together. You see, to understand the holiness of God, you have to understand what holiness means. To understand the love of God, you have to understand what love means. To understand mercy, justice, or about any other trait, you have to understand what that means by itself. But what's great about our God, our Yahweh, our Adonai, is that you can't put him in a box. And it is essential that we, that we ponder and we meditate on these attributes. But then it is our job to figure out how it all comes together. So holiness in and of itself does not entail or inherently mean that God has to love. 
but a holy love. A love that is most expressed by a holy God is the love that he has for his own honor and glory. But because God is holy, he cannot be around sin, and logic would mean that he has every right and every reason to banish us from his presence forever. But at some point, things change. Because God, in the many things that he is at once, with his holiness transcending all of his other traits, at some point, you have to reconcile love. And this God has a holy love, a love that is pure, a love that is set apart, and a love that is majestic. And in Isaiah, we see an amazing visualization of this. In verse 6, after repenting, you see, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. In the moment of Isaiah's repentance, of his understanding of his sin and confessing it to God and asking for forgiveness, he lays at the feet of God because of his understanding of God's holiness. But God, in his love, in a love that, has, that doesn't grow weary, does not grow faint, he does not get tired of loving, that despite what we've done and despite our standing before him, he reaches out to where you are. That in this moment, Isaiah cries out to God in verses 6 and 7. We see the seraphim come to him and touch his mouth with a hot coal, taking his guilt away and atoning for sin. And don't miss this aspect of the story. In this moment that he is undone and exposed before God, God has provided, God provided the coal for him. Let's be honest, have you ever burned yourself on anything? Maybe touched a hot stove, gotten too close to a fire? It hurts. And the lips are one of the most sensitive parts in the body. And it was in this moment that the pain probably was excruciating. But in that moment, Isaiah's guilt is gone and his sin is atoned for. And if we had to speak honestly, what would you, what would you be willing to do to get rid of your guilt? That thing that you did or the thing that you can't stop doing that you wish you could? That relationship that moment that scarred you that you can't get out of your head. God is in the business with his holy love to take away sin, to take away guilt and to atone for sin. That because of his nature, he will not do it because you feel guilty, but he will do it when you come before him and repent. So let me say this again. Because of God's holiness and his love, he will forgive you your sins and take away the guilt and the lies that you continue to tell yourself. But he will not do it just because you feel guilty, and he will not do it just because you tell yourself lies. He will do it when you understand him for who he is. He is your Yahweh, your Adonai. If you give him control over your life, it might hurt. Like a burning coal on your lips, it will hurt at times. But it will lead to an unmatched joy that comes from a freedom that only a holy creator God can provide. So Hill City, we're faced with this dilemma. What does this mean for us? You see, you cannot separate the love of God and the holiness of God. But because of his holiness and our sin, something has to give. You see, his holiness will never falter, and let's be honest, we will always be weak, and we will always be sinful. So there's this chasm, there's this gap between us and God. 
but because of God's ability to be both holy and loving. It becomes a picture of the Trinity. It reaches out to us through his love, his son, all while maintaining his holiness. To meditate on the holiness of God is to reconcile how in the world he would love us, why he would forgive us, and why he would do it at all. Yet to think about it is to contemplate on the very work of Christ. There's no way to reconcile the love and the holiness of God without looking at the life and death of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's holy love made visible. He is God's holy love incarnate. He is the burning coal on the lips of our sin. We come to the Holy One. We come to Yahweh completely undone, caught in our lies and our deception. But his pure and majestic grace is bountiful for those who come to him. And the more that we understand God's holiness and how that compares to our sin, the bigger our understanding is of the cross. And that is where we are at this morning. The answer is how we can make sense of where we belong is to understand our standing with Christ. In Leviticus 20, God commands his people to be holy as he is holy. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. In 1 Peter 1, he reminds us not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but to be holy as he is holy. It is a daunting task. And to understand what it means and who we are in the midst of it is to realize how incapable we are of doing it ourselves. The only way to do this, to pursue righteousness and to be holy as he is holy, is to pursue Christ and to cling closer to the cross. So today, Hill City Church, as we reflect on this idea of, whole, of the holiness of God, may we be overwhelmed at the burden of what we are commanded to do, but in our overwhelmed state, admit and live in a way that acknowledges that it is Christ alone, the holy love of God incarnate that can save us from the holy wrath of God that our sin deserves. Praise him who has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him and to live covered, not by our own deeds, but by the holiness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are holy. God, thank you for your son, for provide, providing to us a way to approach your holy throne. God, help us to better understand your holiness and to better understand our sins so that we may have a better understanding of the cross. God, help us to relinquish control in our lives and help us to pursue righteousness and holiness through your son. God, help us in the pain of repentance so that we may feel the freedom that you so freely offer to those who believe. We thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.